0: All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. Can you hear me in the back? Somewhat, if I can get maybe a little more juice. If you don't have a study guide, you're going to need one this morning, so throw a hand up and we'll try to make sure some of the extras find their way to the back. And if a lot of people are missing one, maybe we can get some married couples to to double up and share so that everybody has something to reference back. If you haven't been with us in recent weeks, we are preaching through the book of 1 John together on Sunday mornings. So we are starting in 1 John chapter 4 this morning, so if you have your Bible, I want you to go ahead and turn there with me. 1 John chapter 4. And I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning. God, far be it from us that we would ever dream of approaching you, Lord, apart from the finished work of Jesus. So we come this morning in the name of Jesus, not in our own righteousness, Lord, but because of your great mercy, we are confident that you will hear us. And our prayer, God, this morning is that you would draw near to us and that you would reveal yourself to us, Lord, through your word all across this room, God, that you would make yourself known in truth. As the living God through your word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to exalt Christ today. Lord, we ask you to exalt him in our minds and in our hearts. God, we ask you to convict us of sin and to exalt the Savior. Lord, and we pray, God, that you would equip each of us in this room, Lord, with your truth. God of truth, come speak to us today, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, First John chapter 4. And I'm going to start us out. We're going to read first six verses together. So if you have your Bible, I want to get everybody's eyes on these words. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And we say this often. This is the Word of God. So I want you to prepare yourself to be addressed, not by a man, but by the living God Himself. Verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit And the spirit of error. This passage today tells every person in the room that we need to be more than sincere about Jesus, about the Christian life, about the things of God. We don't need to be less than sincere, but we need to be more than sincere. We actually need to be right about some things. Actually, we need to be crystal clear and rock solid about some things in this world. The things of Jesus, the things of Christ and the things of his gospel. There are fundamental doctrines that you have to be anchored in if you are to be saved. And the truth in this passage, it's held out to us as something that we can know and something that's authoritative. And this type of authoritative universal truth is becoming less and less accepted in this world. So in this world as it now stands, the liberal church constantly downplays this idea that we can know the truth And that it's authoritative for everybody. Not just some, but for every image bearer of God in all of creation. So the liberal church slings out its slogans like this. It's about love, not about doctrine. You ever heard that? Alright, this is more catchy. It's about deeds, not creeds. It's not about those creeds, it's about the deeds. Anybody ever heard that? Okay? This is what's being attacked. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere, it matters what you do it matters that you're sincere and that you do deeds of love so even broaden this out some past the liberal church we live in a pagan pluralistic world okay that's the society that you live in and the concept of truth in our, in our culture is is relative that it's whatever's true for you is true for you and you decide what's true for you and whatever's true for me is true for me okay So there's a recall in our culture about this idea of universal truth that's true no matter who you are or no no matter where you live in in all of God's creation. So their slogans sound more like this. Keep your theology off my biology. You ever heard that? Okay. You get what you want to think and you keep it over in that closet, but don't start talking to me about this. You decide truth for you and I'll decide truth for me. OK, their concept of truth is completely relative. It's whatever you think. So here's here's what I'm waking us up to that every day in this world, you enter into a truth war. There is a truth battle that rages every day in this society. It's been like this in every generation. OK, in every generation, Satan attacks God's truth in every generation. We're, we're not exceptions to that. And yet in every generation, God has his church, his holy ones that shine the light of his word into this dark world. In every generation, this is the case. That's the truth war. That's the truth war. Listen to first Timothy chapter three, verse 15. Ryan referenced this earlier. It says that the church of the living God is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. So God's universal church in this world, we're the ones, we're the only ones that holds the truth high. That's the pillar. Get it up there that everybody can see it. Hold it up high. Get it in public. And then the buttress holds the truth firm. It guards its purity. So not only the universal church, but every local church is a pillar and a buttress of God's truth. And that's our role at Grace Community Church. we got to get the truth up there. For everybody to see it, and we gotta guard its purity. So, I wanna stir us up to this as a local church that we would hold the truth of God full throttle, unadulterated, not mixed with error, that we would hold it out like a burning torch into this dark world. This is our calling. This is the church of the living God. And then I wanna get even more personal this morning, and I wanna remind every Christian in the room individually that you are a soldier. On the front lines of this truth war, on the front lines of this battle, you say, what do you mean? I mean, right now, even today, tomorrow, there's a truth battle raging in your mind, in your own soul of what you will believe is truth and what you will believe is error. There's a truth war raging in your family, in the house that you live and sleep and and eat in. There's a truth war raging in your workplaces, in your neighborhood, in the city that you live in, and among the nations. And you are a soldier in this battle. Front lines, okay? There's no such thing as a Christian that's not in the battle. There is a such thing as a Christian that's not fighting, okay? Every one of us are in the war. We're either fighting a good fight or we're not fighting a good fight. So I want to wake us up this morning, okay? This is a serious thing. And the stakes of this are eternal, okay? I want to share share something with you that that was helpful for me to think through, okay, of what false teaching is. And and, and a lot of times when I hear false teaching, I get angry. and, And a lot of times it might not be for the best reasons, okay? So I'll give you an example. I want us to wake up to the seriousness of it. So a lot of times I'll hear false teaching and I'll get angry because somebody's getting ripped off, somebody's standing in front of God's people. And they are saying that a thing is A when the thing is actually B, and people are just eating it like, like nobody's business. And something rises up in me in those moments, and I'm thinking that is a ripoff. That is a con artist. He is telling lies, and most of the time he's getting his pockets padded to do it. And, and that ought to make us angry. But but there's something more to it than that. There's something more dangerous than seeing it as just a ripoff and seeing false teachers. As just con artists. And here's what I mean. If that's all you see. If you're like me. You'll be tempted to lack compassion for people that are hearing false teaching. And you'll begin to. Even if you wouldn't say it in practice. You'll begin to think like. You know. If all it is is just selling fake diamonds. And a con artist. Okay. If they're stupid enough to believe these stupid things about Jesus. then If they're stupid enough to buy fake diamonds. then, Then let them buy fake diamonds. You see that? So there's. You can be angry for the wrong reasons, and you can lack compassion. But I want to give you just an example. I think taking it further than seeing false teaching as a ripoff. I want you to picture you with your family at a at a park sometime this week, and this strange dude walks out in this park, and he begins handing out poison candy to children. Okay, that's that's what I want us to see false teaching like. It is destructive. It is deadly, okay? Woe to you if you're in the middle of a park with someone passing out poison to children if you do nothing. Why? That poison is going to kill those children. Well, the poison of false teaching is going to bring about a death that never stops. It heads toward eternal destruction. So I want to wake us up to this. The, the stakes of this, it couldn't be any higher. False doctrine, heresies about Jesus will lead people into a, a eternal hell, the eternal wrath of God. And you're on the front lines of this battle. You are God's light into this dark world. And every single one of us is commanded to do something with God's truth. Every one of us. Listen to Jude 3. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation... I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So there's the phrase I want to stick with you on the front end. Every Christian a contender. I want you to think about that. Where does that play out in your life right now? Where are you contending for the faith? Where is that battle raging? And you are being faithful to the Lord Jesus to contend for the faith faith, and to speak the truth of God in the midst of these satanic lies. Every Christian a contender. Every Christian on the front lines of this battle. So I want you to see yourself like that. I want you to wake up to the opportunities that God has given you to speak His truth. And we have a passage today. That's going to equip us and teach us how to do this. How to do this. So we want to lean in and listen. We are the contenders and we want to learn how to do this from God's word. So the first point this morning is a charge for every single one of us to wake up to the reality of satanic error all around us. Okay, Verse 1, last half first, says for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we say this a pretty good bit around here, but I'll just say it again because we I think we all find this to be true. That a lot of times there's a big gap between what we believe to be true on paper and what we're actually conscious of and experience in our daily life. Okay, So I want to take a second and I want to close that gap. And here's what I mean. I want to remind every person here That when the living God quantified the number of false prophets, He did not use the word few. He tells us in His infallible word that many false prophets have gone out into this world. It's always been this way. It was this way in the early church in the first century. We're not to expect this to get better. We're actually to expect this to get worse. Listen to 2 Timothy 3, verse 13. It says... Evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You catch that? I want us to wake up to that. We're supposed to be living in a world where we're conscious that there are many false teachers around us spreading their false teaching. And not only are we to be aware of their number, look at their zeal. They're not just in the world. Okay. They are actually going out into the world. False teachers are filled with missionary zeal. Okay, That's why you can go to India and you can find the cults. You can go to Pakistan and you can find the cults. You can go to Russia and you can find the cults. Why? Because they're not idle. They're not neutral. They're getting that satanic message out. They're going out into this world. So we want to wake up. There's a lot of them and they're filled with missionary zeal. And just to put a sharper point on that, these false prophets claim to be Christians. So what we're supposed to be most guarded about, okay? You hear sometimes people say things like the greatest threat to the church in this generation is is Islam and radical Islam. I don't think that's true. I think that the greatest threat to the church in every generation is an inside move. It's the counterfeit Christianity, the false prophets. That's what we're supposed to be on guard for more than anything else. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 through 15. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So we're on the lookout for the inside threat. okay? And that's not an empty threat. And I want to encourage us to not feel insulated by these warnings from Scripture. That can never happen to me. That can never happen to my wife. That can never happen to my children. That can never happen at this church We need to be on guard, ready to contend for the faith in every area of our life. And so here's the truth Demons are many, and they are attacking God's church through false prophets. Do you believe that? On paper, many of you would say yes. Okay? But I'm asking you more than on paper do you believe that demons are many? And they are constantly attacking the true church through false prophets. Do you believe that? Let's ask it a different way. What would your life look like on a daily basis if you really were awake to that reality? What would it look like? It would look like the command that we have in verse 1. You would test everything. You would test everything that you hear. So we'll go back to the beginning of verse 1. It says, Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So Christians are the people of the truth, more so than anybody else on planet Earth. We are supposed shame on us if we are gullible. Shame on us if we are superstitious. We're supposed to be the least gullible people on the face of this earth because we operate in the realm of truth without error. That's us. We're the people of God, the people of the truth. And God criticizes in in, in the book of Proverbs. Maybe you've read this before. Fifteen times in the book of Proverbs, God criticizes a person known as the simple person, the simple man or the simple woman. Sometimes we exalt that trait in a person. He's just simple. Okay. God criticizes a person for being simple. And in the book of Proverbs, that word does not mean an uneducated person. A simple person in Proverbs is a naive person, easily deceived. Their mind is so wide open that anybody throws something in there and it lodges. There's nothing guarded about them. Listen to Proverbs 14, verse 15. The simple believes everything. You see that? Versus the commandment in verse 1. Do not believe every spirit. Okay? So many of you don't need to be reminded that we don't get our theology from superstars. Right? So contrary to Leonard Skinner's theology, don't be a simple man. Right? Anybody ever heard that? Don't be a simple man. That's not what you need to be. You need to test the spirits. You don't need to believe everything you hear. You need to be rooted in the truth, anchored in the truth. You need to know exactly what you believe. You need to know it well enough to contend for it. Test the spirits. Test everything. And yes, I mean everything. That's the exact words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21. Test everything. Everything that you can imagine that claims to be true, test it. Test it. Specifically, and this is interesting, Right? We're not to test. We we are to test the content of what somebody's saying. But what it specifically tells us to do here is to test the spirits, to test the spirits. And so God is telling us, even with the way that this is worded, that whenever you hear a religious thought enter into your mind, okay, that came through the lips of a man, but it originated with the spirit. And it's either it either originated with the Holy Spirit or it either originated with demonic spirits. That's your only two options. So every religious truth that you have ever heard, every religious thought that you've ever heard in your entire life came from one of those two places. No neutrality. There's nothing, no such thing as harmless religious thoughts. Okay, it came from the Holy Spirit or it came from demons. And God's word tells us Commands us to discern the origin. Where would that come from? Test the spirits. The best Greek dictionary defines the word test like this. Make a critical examination of something to determine its genuineness. I wonder where that's playing out in your life. Not the simple man that believes everything. Mind wide open, but a critical examination that everything you're you're hearing, you are running it through and evaluating it. Is this true? Is this from the Holy Spirit? So this is our commandment. Test everything. So in the present tense, it's to be the continual practice of your life. Not just one time when you become a Christian and you decide what's right. Test everything always. And this is a commandment for every Christian. This is not just a commandment for pastors. Are people that like to read books about theology. Every Christian, you are commanded to constantly test everything that you hear that claims to be true. And then the passage moves directly into answering our question because some of us will ask, well, how do I do that? How do I do that? I want to do that. I want to wake up to the reality of it. How do I do it? And here's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time finishing out this passage. What kinds of things are we looking for when we test the spirits? How are we supposed to do it? The first thing he gives us is that we are to test what others teach about the Lord Jesus and his work. Test what others teach about the Lord Jesus and his work. Listen to verses 2-4 through again. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh... Is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus. Is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Which you heard was coming. And now is in the world already. Little children you are from God. And have overcome them. For he who is in you. Is greater than he who is in the world. Lost some people in the first four verses. Maybe not anybody in here, but some people get lost on this. By this, you know. Some people lose it right there. You can't really know anything. That's your interpretation of the Bible. That's what you say. Other people say this. God directly contradicts that in His Word. You can know what is true and what is false doctrine. It can be crystal clear. You can know it. So God wants... True and false doctrine to be discernible to you. He's not trying to hide it from you. He wants it to be knowable to you. So he gives us these tests to evaluate. And the first is what I'm calling a Christology test. And that's just a long word that that is used to summarize. What does the Bible teach about the person of Christ? Who is he? And what did he do? So this is when we lean in and we begin to examine teachings and teachers. More than anything else, this is what we're zoned in on. What do they say about the Lord Jesus? Who is He and what has He done? And because you all know this, or most of you do, that false teachers can sound so spiritual. So spiritual. They've heard five revelations uh, from God. Fresh new revelations. You know, before they sit down with you for a cup of coffee at 930 in the morning. They've seen 17 people get healed. And somebody get delivered from this addiction and that. So spiritual. Sounds so spiritual. But the Bible teaches that the only person who is spiritual is the person who confesses the right Jesus. The right Christ. This is the Christology test. What do they teach about Jesus? Now, you need to know in church history, and we're seeing this play out in 1 John, that from the very beginning of the church, the heresies started taking direct aim right here at the bullseye of the gospel. Who is Jesus? And so these heresies started to get lost in the church, distorting the identity of Christ. It's always been like this. This is a satanic strategy to attack the church. He wants to distort the biblical Jesus... He wants to strip the Lord Jesus of His glory. And He wants to present you a counterfeit Christ that cannot save you from sin. He's still doing it in our generation. He's done it from the very beginning. So here's what John does. And and we could spend our time this morning walking through 10, 15, 20 heresies about what some people say about Jesus. And actually what the truth is about Jesus. And that could be helpful. It's not unhelpful. But the most important thing for you to do, for you to learn, is the truth. So this is exactly what he does. Instead of going ins and outs of all the details of the heresy, he just throws the truth out there. What you really need to know about Jesus is this. Do they confess this about Christ? This is not the only thing that you must confess about Christ. You find other phrases in 1 John that you must believe. Jesus is the Son of God. That's one example but you must believe this about Jesus. And so that's that's the heart behind what we're about to do in the next few minutes. The most important thing for you to know is the truth. And once you know the truth, then and only then are you able to discern the errors. You had a lot of people talk about this in the past year that you have all these crooked sticks of false doctrine, okay? And you could spend a lot of time studying the crooked sticks and the heresy Or you could get intimately familiar with a straight stick and you can lay the straight stick beside the crooked stick and you can know it in a moment. So this is the biblical Christ. This is fundamental Christianity. Okay. Fundamental Christianity. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. So brothers and sisters, I want to use that phrase. And I want to remind you of who he is. I want to remind us when Jesus says, who do you say I am? I want to remind us of who he is. And and I want to remind us that he is glorious. We have an all sufficient, glorious Christ. There is nothing boring about Jesus. There is no comparison to the Lord Jesus. He has no rivals. And I want us to see his glory just in these words. He is Jesus Christ and he has come in the flesh. Let's unpack that under those three headings. He is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus Christ. Many of you have heard these words hundreds of times in your life. Let's unpack them. Let's see the beauty of them. Let's see the glory that's laying right there on the page in those two words. He's Jesus Christ. He's one person with two natures. He's God and He's man. He's Jesus. That's His human name. He is that carpenter from Nazareth. He is that good teacher. He's the one that slept in the boat. That ate the meal with the disciples. The one that wept at the funeral of, of Lazarus. He's Jesus. Walking the dusty streets of Galilee. He's a real man. He's a human. He's Jesus. But he's Jesus Christ. And that word Christ has a rich Old Testament background and significance. And I want you to see it. The word Christ means anointed one. The anointed one. This was the promised figure. All throughout the Old Testament who would deliver the people of God. He was God's anointed king that was going to arrive and deliver Israel. This is called, in Hebrew he was called the Messiah. And in Greek he is called the Christ. And that human Jesus is also the Christ. And I want to show you some things about this figure. This long awaited one in the Old Testament. He's a man, but he's more than a man. He is a supernatural figure throughout Old Testament prophecy. So according to Scripture, here's who the Jews were waiting on. Here's the Christ of Scripture that they were waiting to arrive. Micah chapter 5 verse 22 tells us that a ruler is on his way. A ruler. And then it tags this phrase right on the end of it. It says, who's coming is from Ancient of Days. That's the Christ of Scripture. So you have these words blend together. That yes, He's Jesus. That humble carpenter of Nazareth. Okay? But He is the one that came to us from ancient of days. He is the preexistent one. This is the Christ. 2 Samuel chapter 7 tells us that this coming King was to reign forever. Let that soak in. Not for a millennia not for 500 millennia, that there was a king coming, God's anointed one, God's Christ, and he would not go to the grave. He would sit on the throne forever, forever. So the Christ of Scripture, the Christ that, that was to be awaited, was an eternal one, a preexistent one and an eternal one. And then listen to this, Isaiah 9:6, the stream of prophecy about the Messiah. Isaiah 9, 6 tells about a ruler, a king that's going to, to be born. And, and it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So this massive kingdom ever expanding. And then it tells you that one of the names that they're going to call this king is to say that he's going to be called mighty God. Mighty God. That he's going to reign over a real kingdom. But we are going to refer to Him as mighty God. Do you see that? That the Christ of Scripture is supernatural. So every time you say this, and you might not know it, but every time you say the words, Lord Jesus, or Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ, you're confessing He's man and He's God. He's fully man and He's fully God. He's the God-man. There's none like Him. This is who the who the real Jesus is. He's god and He's man. And I want you to see the unity there. He's not Jesus sometimes and the Christ at other times. He's Jesus Christ. He's one person. And so many of these heresies about Jesus, they begin to split these natures of Jesus in half. And they try to divide Him. We talked about some early heresies where there was lies about Jesus. that, that the No, actually the Christ came upon Jesus... The divine vigor came upon Jesus at his baptism, but he left Jesus before he was crucified on the cross, because God could never be crucified on the cross. And so, this idea is that the Christ came upon the human and then left the human. And that's an ancient heresy, but it's still around today. This is still what's being attacked. The Jehovah's Witnesses attack the deity of the Lord Jesus. They they ascribe the Lord Jesus to a created being, a created angel. They strip him of his glory. Their Christ is not named Mighty God. He is a created angel. But every angel that that exists in heaven and on earth will bow the knee and worship this Lord Jesus, the Christ of Scripture. The Mormons do the same thing. That He was the eternal Son of God. He emptied Himself of His deity. Emptied Himself of His deity. That is a heresy. And then He walked on this earth as a man and He became God again. Do you see? It's never changed. That's always the strategy to attack these two natures. But who is He? He, You can't divide them apart. He's Jesus Christ. He's the God-man. He is fully God and fully God. Man, He is Jesus Christ. He is Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus, King Jesus. And to, ne- and to deny either of those, His historical humanity, His eternal deity, to deny either of those things about Christ, leaves you in hell with a Christ that cannot save you from sin. It strips Him of His glory And of His power to save. And it becomes a counterfeit Jesus. Another Jesus that cannot save you from sin. He's Jesus Christ. And then John tells us that this glorious Christ has come. Has come. So you think about that. You think about that. Where were you before you were born? We've asked you that many times. You were nowhere. The Lord Jesus came from somewhere. He came from somewhere. John 17 tells us where He came from. Tells us where He came from. Verse 5. Jesus prays this. Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Jesus came from a face-to-face relationship with God the Father. He was in glory With the Father. He came from a realm of eternal riches, of glory, never ending glory. He came from glory. The Christ of Scripture is pre-existent. And then He comes to earth. Comes to earth. And that means that Christians that confess the biblical Jesus, the real Christ, that when we read that story of that baby in the manger in Luke chapter 2, That we're not just saying, oh, sweet Jesus, sweet Jesus. We confess that that little helpless baby in the manger came to us from the realm of eternal glory. With every angel that's ever been created bowing down and worshiping Him. He is the pre-existent one that came to us. That came to us. He came out of eternity and into time. One of His names, according to Isaiah 9, 6... They call him the everlasting father. And literally that phrase means Jesus fathered eternity. Think of how majestic and powerful that is. Who created eternity? Jesus did. He fathered it. It came from him. He came out of eternity into time. He came to us. And this is not a fairy tale. He came to us in real human history, real human history. So when you read about the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2, it starts talking about real history around when he came. It's not like, oh yeah, he just came to us a long time ago and he was born of a virgin. No, he was born during verifiable Roman rulers. Specific names of governors. Verifiable Roman history. In the middle of verifiable Roman censuses. This is not a fairy tale. This is more real than the law of gravity. He came out of eternity into real human history. He came to us. And then John tells us that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. In the flesh. So one of the things that the church has confessed for thousands of years... Is this remaining what he was, deity? He took on what he was not, humanity. He did not stop being God and become man, remaining who he was, God. He took on who he was not, man. The Lord Jesus came to us in the flesh, He's the God man, He was incarnated, the one from eternity. Was incarnated in real human history. And here is the burning question of the day why? Why is he here? You get this right, and, and you know the biblical Christ. You are close to understanding the gospel. Why is he here? Why has the one from eternity invaded human history and taken on a human body? And many people would tell, tell you to be an example, to show us how to live. And it is true that we should live like Jesus. That He is a perfect example for us to know how to live under God's law and under God's will. But I'll tell you this. If you do not have more than Christ an example, you are lost and you are dead in your sins. He did not come here mainly primarily to show you how to do something he came he's in the flesh he's in the body to do what you couldn't do for yourself he is here as the savior he is here on the rescue mission to save sinners he's not here to give you self-help he's here to do a work of salvation that's why when he comes into the world they say, you shall call his name jesus why has he got that human name because he's going to save his people from their sins that's why he's here He is on a rescue mission for our salvation. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17. He came in the flesh to accomplish our salvation. Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect. So that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So why do we celebrate Christmas? It's not a cute baby story. It's a salvation story. That's our Savior invading history. He's coming to redeem His people. He just took on a real human body. Now I want you to think about why did He do that? Why why does this text say He had to do that? He had to be made like us in every respect. Why is He in humanity? Why does He have a real body? Why did He come to us in the flesh? And the Bible is clear on this. He came to us in a real human body and He accrued a real perfect righteousness as a real man under the real law of God. And so He is... The God-man. Perfect in righteousness. Never a moment in the Lord Jesus' life where He stumbles. Where He fails to love the Lord His God with everything that He has. Where He fails to love His neighbor as His very own self. Never a moment did He stumble. Spotless, everlasting righteousness. In a real human body. And then what does He do with that spotless righteousness? He does not... Look at us and say, I'm your example. Told you you could do it. I'll see you at the judgment seat. That's not what he told us, right? What did he do with that perfect righteousness? That perfect obedience to God? He becomes the spotless lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So he takes that sinless human body. He came to us in the flesh. Takes that perfect righteousness and offers it up as a perfect atonement for sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 5, chapter 10, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. God doesn't want those Old Testament sacrifices anymore. He wants righteousness and a real human body. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, that's Christ speaking, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. God was tired of those sacrifices. He wanted somebody to come do His will in a real body. And God the Father prepared that body for Him. A real human body. And turn later, Chapter 10 to verse 10. This is what Jesus did with that body. And by that will. We have been sanctified. Through the offering. Of the body of Jesus. One time for all. Praise the Lord. He takes that perfect righteousness. That perfect record. And it becomes our bloody payment. For our sins. So, the Lord Jesus, the God-man, in a real human body, hammered to the cross. Wasn't a, he wasn't a, a phantom spirit. Okay, he, It wasn't like an Old Testament theophany where God appeared to Old Testament prophets and then went away for a little while. No, they hammered him to the cross and he bled out. His heart stopped beating. He stopped breathing. He became a dead Dead, cold corpse. And they stuffed him in a tomb. And the people of God begin to worship. Why? Because that's more than just a sad story. That's our payment for sin. He just endured the wrath of God that should have fell on us. It just fell on the Lamb instead. He's in the flesh for our salvation. For our salvation. Dead, dead, dead. Praise the Lord for a dead God-man. Paying for our sins. And then three days later, the church begins to sing this song. Oh, death, where is your sting? You just got swallowed by our resurrected King. In a real human body, the Lord Jesus comes out of the tomb as a glorified man. It's glorified humanity. In a real human body, He conquers our strongest enemy. So the question, I'll just ask you this right now. Who do you know like Him? Who do you know like the unique, one and only Jesus Christ, the God-man, that lays down His life and then turns around and takes it up again? This is the Christ of Scripture. And He is glorious. He is glorious. There is none like Him. Both His deity and His humanity are necessary for your salvation. He can't be any different than this. So one of the ways I want us to learn how to contend is there's no other answer to our problem of sin other than a God-man dying in our place. You say, what do you mean? If Jesus is not God, let's start with this. If He is not man, He cannot die. God cannot die. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that He took on flesh and blood so that through death... This is why He did it. He he came to share flesh and blood with us. Hebrews 2.14 So that through death. He took on the body so that He could die for our sins. If He's not a man, you have no atonement for sin. But if Jesus is not God, then that atonement that He offers up, it cannot pay for your sin. You say, what do you mean? I mean Psalm 49 verse 7. It says this, No man, listen close, No man can ransom another. A man cannot ransom you. If all you have is a good teacher and a moral example, you're dead in your sins because nobody paid for your sins. No man can ransom another. Same chapter of Scripture. Fast forward to verse 15. But God will ransom my life. Who does the ransoming? Not man, but God. Man cannot pay the price that you owe to God. Only God can pay that price. So this unique once for all offering was offered up to God, the God-man. And in His humanity, He dies for our sins, but in His deity, His death covers all the elect of God who have repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. One sacrifice saves multitudes and multitudes that no man can number, wipes away their sin. This is the God-man. This is the Gospel. This is the Christ of Scripture. Scripture. And anything short of this, according to 1 John 4, is from the Antichrist. It is not a confused person about Jesus. That may be true, but under that confusion about Jesus, that thought came from a demon. That is Antichrist. Anything that attacks his humanity or his deity is from the evil one. And the verb, when, when he says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That verb is in the Greek perfect tense. And we've said this many times in this letter. That means that something was done in the past that has ongoing effects in the present. So brothers and sisters, what that verse means for you and for me is that he is still in the flesh. He is still the God man in this moment. When we stand up and worship Him, we are worshiping the one and only unique Savior, the God-man, our Lord Jesus. He never, once that incarnation happens and He takes on what He's not, humanity, He never sheds His humanity throughout all of eternity. And that's a comfort to us. That's a comfort to us. Why? Because right now in this moment, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with with us he he has entered into our full experience he knows our weakness and so throughout all of eternity we will know him by his human name jesus he's not changing his name he's always going to be the god man jesus the one who became like us the one who sympathizes with us and yet at the same time throughout all of eternity we will worship him As mighty God. He is the God man. And he always will be. Fully human. And fully God. This is Christ Jesus. Come in the flesh. So here's the question. I want us to close this section out with. Do you confess that about Jesus? Passage says. Whoever confesses this about Christ. That's how you know the spirit of God. So that's the question for you. Do you confess this about Jesus? And please do not get, Please do not get confused. I'm not asking you if you believe facts on the paper about Christ. I'm not. Demons in hell can tell you everything I just told you about Jesus. They know He's God and man. They know that He's going to torment them throughout endless ages. They know He came in the flesh. They tried to stop it. They tried to kill every little baby boy in the town that He was born in. They know He's born in the flesh. They know He is Jesus Christ. Sent as the One who will crush the head of the serpent. That's not what I'm asking you. If you believe it like facts on a paper. I'm asking you, do you confess this? Is this what you confess? Is this what you confess? Not just do you have intellectual thoughts or warm thoughts. about When you think about Jesus, you think warm things. Okay, Gandhi thought warm things too. Jesus is a great teacher. Jesus is a great example. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you confess this glorious Christ? Do you bow the knee? Do you bow the knee? Is this who you swear allegiance to? This one and only unique God-man? Is this Christ so glorious to you that you would lose your life if you could just find your life in that Christ? Is He that precious to you? That much of a treasure to you? Do you confess Him? Be confessing. We sing this song a lot at this church. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. If that's the Christ you have, you're the richest person in the universe. The God-man that paid for our sins. I want us to read verse 4 again. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So before we move past these few verses, I want to show us that it is only by God's powerful and great spirit within us that we overcome heresy. You are not smart enough. Let that humble you. You're not smart enough to figure it out. You have enemies that have existed since Genesis chapter 1. Okay? You are not smart enough to figure this out on your own. But God did something for us. He gave us His great and powerful Spirit. He who is in us is greater. And so I'm reminding you, brothers and sisters, the only chance that you have of not being buried as a heretic in this world is that you have the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of wisdom. And nothing is stronger than the Holy Spirit. This is God Himself, the third person of the Trinity. So I want to just make a few points about this. I was reminded this week, this week of the power of demonic lies about Jesus. Just this week. And I was reminded there, there, there was somebody that has peaked, peaked their head in this church several times. And I've lost contact with them. Several other people here at Grace have lost contact with them in, in recent months. And in four weeks... Four weeks of a Christian cult sharing lies about Jesus, there's almost such a wall in front of that person that they will refuse to even talk about this Christ of Scripture. Four weeks. There was a wide open door for the Word of God. Four weeks listening to these powerful demonic lies and the wall is shut to the true Christ. I want you to be reminded of that. These lies, these heresies about Jesus... They are powerful. They will grab a hold of you. You can't figure it out. You can't outsmart these enemies. And then I was also reminded this week, praise the living God, that there's something more powerful than these demonic lies. We have the Holy Spirit and nothing is stronger than he is. Nothing is stronger than the one who lives in us. He is greater. He is greater. So I want you to personally meditate on this truth. That the Spirit of God has rescued you personally from heresy. From heresy. I want to share a quick story. And many of you might know this. Some of you might not. We have a brother and sister. I'm going to share this example. And I want you to consider this for yourself. We have a brother and sister in this church. Canis and Sedell. And both of them. Check this out. Both of them were brought up around demonic, satanic lies about Jesus. So uh, Canets, our sister, was brought up in a family. Not all of them, but some of them. They were involved in black Hebrew Israelite cult to the core. They reject the Christ of Scripture. They practice polygamy. They think they're the chosen people of God. In the middle of Mississippi, I guess. And our sister heard those things. Many years in her life. She heard these powerful, heretical lies about Jesus. And then her husband, Sidel. Similar thing. He's got members of his family involved in the Jehovah's Witness Church. His own mom believes a false Christ. Believes that Jesus is a created being. Not a creator who is blessed forever. That is worship throughout eternity. Neither of these Christ, these versions of Jesus, can save from sin. They are demonic. Satanic religions. But what did God do? What hope would anybody like that have? That they grow up around these lies about Jesus. What hope would they have? Well, here's the hope. That God, before the foundation of the world, He elected and determined that this brother and sister would know the truth. So in the middle of these lies, God, by His powerful Spirit, reveals the true gospel. And once that happens, there's no going back. They know the truth. They have the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit rescued them from heresy. From heresy. And I want you to meditate on this. What stupid things would you believe about Jesus right now, if not for the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Praise you, worship you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for delivering every disciple in this room from 100,000 heresies. We know the truth because the spirit of truth and the spirit of wisdom dwells within us. And nothing is stronger than he is. That's why we don't fear of dying a heretic. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. The second test that this passage gives us to put to others is the test. How how do these teachers, how do they respond To the apostles. To the words of the apostles. Listen to verse 5 and 6. They are from the world. Therefore they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth. And the spirit of error. So this is what I'm calling the authority test. How do these teachers respond to the, to authority? To authority. And here's what I mean. The they in those two verses, those are the false teachers. The us in those two verses are the apostles. Okay? If you're a Christian, you listen to the apostles. If you're from the world, you listen to the false teachers. That's the basic idea here. Okay? And what this means is that we can have confidence in this, that every Christian, every person who is genuinely born again, will always respond over the long run, always respond to the words of the apostles which are found only in Scripture. This is the authority for the believer. Why? Why will every Christian submit to the authority of Scripture? Because when Scripture speaks, they're hearing the voice of God, not the voice of man. This is so clear in God's Word. This is so clear for John that if you're born again, you hear the words of God and respond. Respond. Listen to this. John chapter 8, verse 47. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. What a comfort. What a comfort for us. John chapter 10, verse 8. This is kind of the opposite. All who came before me are thieves and robbers as false teachers. And then what does Jesus say? But the sheep did not listen to them. Why? Why did the false teachers come? And they didn't listen. I mean, the the sheep didn't listen to these false teachers. Well, listen to the same chapter of Scripture. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep, this is the Lord Jesus talking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. John chapter 18, verse 37, everyone, just let that hit you again, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. No exceptions. And what a comfort to any disciple of Jesus that labors for the Lord that we have a promise from God that if we continually get the truth out high and firm, Over and over and over again. That there's not one sheep of the Lord Jesus that will not hear His voice and respond. That's how we can go to sleep at night and trust the living God. Because His sheep hear His voice. The Scripture is our authority. It's the authority of every Christian. And the word that we use to describe the books of the Bible that belong in the Bible... Is the word canon. Called call this the canon of Scripture. There are other books in the Bible that were rejected. They're not part of the canon. So, the, what we accept as authoritative for the church is called the canon. And that word means the measuring stick. What a powerful description of the Bible. It's the measuring stick. Okay? It is the canon, it is the, the standard by which everything else is held up next to. And if, it's de, if it deviates, from the measuring stick, it is to be rejected. Rejected. True Christians, hear His voice. They love to be examined by the measuring stick because they want to know if they have deviated from their Lord. They are under authority. Love the measuring stick. Don't want to walk in heresy. Measure me with the measuring stick. Let the righteous strike me. It will be a kindness to me. That's the humble heart of of someone who does not want to dishonor the Lord Jesus. They want to get under the words of the apostles recorded in scripture. Liberal Christians? Not so much. They, they hate the idea of being examined by the measuring stick. Don't tell me what's wrong with me. okay? And even more so than that, they hate the measuring stick. Okay? And you see this. Anytime the Bible is treated like a buffet line of take a little bit of what you like and anything in Scripture that headbutts what you want to believe, you explain your way around it or you just get rid of it altogether. This is the liberal idea of not being under authority. And I've heard this many times in my life. I've heard about the story of uh, Thomas Jefferson. And we got to be really careful when we talk about return in America to a Christian nation because a lot of people uh, that we call Christians and the founding fathers they were what do I just ask you this what do you do what do you do if you want to if you want to name the name of Christ but not submit to anything that he teaches that you want that you don't agree with you call yourself a deist that's what you do you just get rid of everything in scripture that you don't agree with everything that's supernatural anything that That slams up against your worldview, and you just you just dislodge it. You get you get rid of it. And so there's there's a story, it's a true story in history. This is what Thomas Jefferson did. He took his Bible, he did not believe in in the Christ of Scripture, he believed in a false good teacher, Jesus, and he takes scissors to the pages. And he cuts out everything in his Bible that's supernatural, every miracle. He had the audacity to put the scissor to the page. Everything there that he didn't agree with. And he took those fragments and he glued them back. You know, everything that he did agree with, he glued them back on a piece of paper and he published a book. Uh, called the, I think it's called The Life and Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Gag in the mouth, right? The Life and Teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. Now they, they photocopied that thing and they sell it as an artifact and they call it the Jefferson Bible. Me and Ryan saw a picture of it, held it in our hand. Uh, just last week, and you open the pages, and sure enough, cut scripture to pieces, stacking. You can go from verse twenty-two to verse forty-seven. Don't like that? Get 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 rid of that. But here's the thing, okay? At least the man had guts to put the scissor to the page. But the literal church in our day does the same exact thing, except they pay lip service to the Word of God. They hate being measured by the measuring stick, okay? And the biggest problem, probably the biggest problem in, in our generation is the charismania of false prophets that, that hate the thought, that despise the thought that you would ever dare question their experiences, their revelations, their miracles, their answers to prayer, their interpretations of Scripture, that you would even dare to hold them next to the measuring stick. They are the anointed of God. The, that's probably the biggest problem in our generation is a man hates, an arrogant man hates standing beside the measuring stick of God's Word and bowing the knee to the book and the God of the book. I'll remind you what Scripture says about this in Deuteronomy chapter 13 under Old Testament law. It teaches that even if a man were to do a miracle, first five verses of Deuteronomy 13, go read this when you get home, even if a man were to do a miracle right in front of your face, And teach you heresy about God. Under Old Testament law. God commands that you stone that man. That he is to die. Because he has taught rebellion against the Lord. Is that all it takes for you? Is somebody to do something sensual. That seems supernatural. And you swallow the mouth. Hook, line, and sinker. And just bite whatever you hear. Is that all it takes for you? This is a warning in God's word. Even if somebody raises the dead Right in front of your face. And teaches a false gospel under Old Testament law, that person would have been executed. And I'm not saying that we should do that. But I am saying if that were still happening, you would have a lot less, you know, smiley mouth people talking about the Lord told me this. The Lord told me this. I had this dream, and this dream, and he promised me this. People would be a lot looser with saying those words. The Lord told me blank. There's a standard that God holds us to in His Word, Galatians chapter one. This is the New Testament. He commands you: if an angel from heaven, if an angel from heaven, Galatians chapter one verse eight, comes to you with a different gospel than the one that you heard, the Christ of Scripture, he is to be pronounced anathema, curse of God be upon you. So you just picture yourself. What did that really happen to you tonight? An angel from heaven shows up in your bedroom and you see a blazing created being of God. Thousands of times more powerful than you. And they tell you a little twisted truth about Jesus. God's word commands you to pronounce the curse of God upon them. And that verse of scripture should have stopped Mormonism dead in its tracks. That the angel Moroni gave another testament of the Lord Jesus. That is exactly what he told Him to do. Pronounce the curse on him. He's teaching another Christ. I don't think we have to doubt that that really happened. I don't think we have to doubt that an angel or a demon disguised that an angel really showed up and told him that and gave him that book. Doesn't matter if it was an angel, curse of God upon them. You can't judge things by experience. You have to judge them by the measuring stick, the canon of Scripture. So we need to be a people. We're going to be contenders in this world. We're going to contend for the faith. And that means we're going to constantly put up this measuring stick to everything we hear. If the church doesn't do this, nobody else is doing it. This is our job. We're the pillar, holding it high. This is our job to hold out the measuring stick of God's truth into this world. And here's the truth. And we'll close with this application. If you want to hold out the measuring stick every day and in every sphere of your life, you have to know it. You have to know what it is. You have to be intimately familiar with with the measuring stick. Okay, You cannot test anything in this world apart from God's written revelation. If you could, why did He give us the book? Do you understand this? You can't test anything in and of yourself. You need the measuring stick. You need God's Word so I want to encourage every, every disciple of Jesus, I want to leave with this encouragement that you would get in this book every single day. Every single day that you would be in this book becoming more and more familiar with the measuring stick by which you're supposed to test everything against. This is nobility according to the early church. Listen to Acts 17 verse 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Daily. That word is actually in the Bible. Examining daily. And so I'll just share this with you as we close. There are many reasons to read the Bible every day. Highest of which is you can know God and commune with the living God. You can draw near to Him in His Word. Hear Him speak to you. There are other reasons. That book can keep you from sin. That book is a sword of the Holy Spirit. It can kill sin in your life. That book equips you to open your mouth and and share helpful things with, with other brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. God can give you a word in season that can sustain the weary one. That you're... And that's in your small group. Or that you live beside in your neighbor. There are lots of reasons to go daily in the book. Your soul needs it like daily bread. You need to be nourished. You need to be strengthened. Lots of reasons. But here's one that I want you to think about today. One reason to read God's Word every single day. Is so that you would not believe every spirit. So that you would test the spirits. Say, so what do you mean? Every day. You don't pick which day. Of your work week that you go into the truth war. You don't. Every single day you have thoughts that are being launched at you and people around you. And so there's the question. What do you what are you trusting in? What's what what's the guard for you in those moments when God's truth is assaulted? What do you reach for? And so you're in the battle every single day. Therefore, you need God's truth being poured into your mind. Every single day. Otherwise. And you may have never thought about it like this. And I think it will be helpful for you to consider it. Otherwise. If you're not doing that. You are showing a tremendous amount of confidence. In your own ability. To discern right from wrong. And truth from error. And that is dangerous in every way I know how to say it. And it leaves you vulnerable. To satanic lies. And distortions about Christ and about the Christian life. So there's the encouragement that we would continually guard ourselves from false doctrine by feasting daily on the truth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask you, even now, Lord, as a local church, God, that you would put your hand on us. Lord, before I even ask that, God, I want you to I want to thank you, Lord, for delivering us from false doctrine. God, it is true. There, there is no end to the wickedness of what we would believe without you, apart from you revealing yourself to us, Lord. We are, we are not wise. You only are wise, Lord, and you revealed yourself to us. God, praise to your name. Thank you for this church. Thank you that we can know the truth, that we can know you in truth. And God, we ask that you would keep us humble, Lord. God, keep us humble. Keep us leaned hard against Your words, as revealed to us in Scripture, help us to never depart, never depart from the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.